Well, we're continuing through the book of Judges this morning. We've made it all the way up to chapter 13. Uh, Last week was pretty interesting with Jephthah, if you remember. Uh, If you weren't here, you'll have to check it out uh, online or grab a CD. It was was fun times. Uh, This chapter is not as difficult, not as interesting. uh, But, uh, well, to me, I think it's still wildly interesting. Uh, And there's a lot that, that goes on. Um, But we're seeing a similar pattern throughout Judges, right? The people sin, they're oppressed because they go after other gods, and then they're oppressed by the people that follow those gods. They cry out to the one true God who then raises up a judge to deliver them. And then they resume sinning, and the cycle repeats itself over and over and over. So we're pretty used to it at this point. uh, The book of Judges has kind of gone in a steady decline. Uh, We started out and it was okay. Uh, The first judge did an all right job. And then the second judge did a little uh, less of an all right job. And then just slowly but surely there was this disintegration or this downward spiral is what many people talk about in Judges. So at this point, it's very, very dark on the heels of Jephthah as uh, one of the previous judges, uh, the, the last major judge. And we find ourselves in in chapter 13, which is going to be the last really big narrative in Judges. And it's going to go all the way through chapter 16. And so this morning, we're actually looking at uh, the birth narrative of Samson. You're probably familiar with Samson a little bit. He he makes it into all the Bible stories, unlike Jephthah, who we looked at last week. Um, But Samson, he's a a popular figure. Um, And this is the story of his birth. And we're going to set the stage a little bit, and then we'll, then we'll pray and, and move into the text. And so at verse 1 of chapter 13, we read uh, the similar uh, pattern that we've seen over and over again. We read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this is the third time that Israel has gone after the gods of the Philistines, and it's the third time they found themselves oppressed by them. This particular oppression was really bad. It went on for 40 years. Yet instead of crying out from under the burden of this oppression, coexistence with the Philistines became the norm. They just became okay with being oppressed. And so we don't see a cry. Yet despite their ignorance and despite their lack of love for God and their love for evil, God does not forget his promise. He would raise up another deliverer. The people are are broken and they're blind. Yet God is continuing to show himself to be faithful. Verse 2 introduces us to a man named Manoah. And his wife, who remains nameless throughout the narrative, who's also childless. As we previously discussed, any couple in this culture without children would have been viewed as being cursed or cast away from the love of God. But verse 3 changes all of that. Imagine with me, if you will, a woman with no children and no hopes of children for the future who suddenly finds herself in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And he says to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne any children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold... You shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God. From the womb he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The woman rushes home with excitement. Breathlessly, she tells her husband of the good news. She had a very awesome encounter. 
the angel of the Lord told her that they would have a son. And not only a son, a special son, a son that would deliver the people from the oppression of the Philistines. Now, because we're familiar with this pattern of judges, it's at this point we accept the narrative to just continue right on into verses 24 and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Maniadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Instead, our narrative, our story is interrupted by, by Manoah himself. He doesn't quite understand God's message, his relationship to God, or God's character. And in verses 8 through 23, we're going to kind of examine some of his misunderstandings, and we're going to frame our discussion around three questions. I've kind of come up with these three questions to to paraphrase the main idea of uh, Manoah's misunderstanding of God in each section. And so those, those three questions are as follows. What are the rules? Will you stay and eat? And why aren't we dead? What are the rules? Will you stay and eat? And why aren't we dead? That's where we're going to center our discussion around this morning. So if you'd pray with me before we uh, started going a little verse by verse through the text, uh, that would be great. Dear Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. We need your word. Some of us have had uh, fresh spiritual experiences and uh, are having a mountaintop experience, and our relationship with you is just peachy keen. It's, it's all good. We're excited to be here. And Lord, others of us are in a desert place. We are thirsty for living water. Father, I pray that you would meet uh, both types of people this morning here, and that you would bring us into closer relationship with you, that we would have a deeper intimacy with you as a result of hearing your word proclaimed this morning. God, I ask that you would help me to preach faithfully. That you would help the listeners to listen well and to hear and to meditate on this, your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come up to verse 8 where the narrative is interrupted. We read, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Manoah prays to the Lord, right? His wife comes home. She tells him this great news. You're going to have a special child. He's going to deliver Israel. And so Manoah's response after some thinking, I don't know, is to pray to the Lord. He basically says, God, you, you know that miraculous appearing you did to my wife? Could you, could you do it again so that I could ask you some questions and we could iron out some details on this whole child-raising thing? Nazarite, I'm not sure he's going to be a special child. So could you just come and answer some questions that I have for you? A, a second miraculous appearing would be great. And then in verse 9, we see God actually responds to this prayer. And the angel appears a second time, not to Manoah, but to his wife. I think that's kind of funny. She has to run and get him, even though he asked for the second appearance. And then they proceed to to have a conversation. But before we get to that conversation, I just want to simply point out that uh, Manoah's prayer was effective. See, when you pray, it matters. Prayer doesn't always lead to, to everything we might expect it to lead to. We don't always get what we want from God might not lead to everything working out just how we thought it should. 
But prayer changes us. It helps our heartbeat to become God's heartbeat. And it's heard by God. Prayer is vital to the Christian life. It's vital to how we interact with the Lord of the universe. But in commenting on prayer, I think we should ask, what exactly is it? And how do we do it? I think most simply defined, prayer is communicating with God. As you might know, communication is pretty integral to any relationship that we have. Any friendship, in your marriage, you have to communicate or that relationship will find itself very sick and very feeble, very easily broken. This, is, I think, is why we see Jesus just about every time we turn around in the Gospels, he's in prayer. Early in the morning, he is praying. He prays so much that in Luke 11, his disciples actually ask him, teach us to pray. Because they know that Jesus is close with God and they too want to learn. How do we communicate with the Father? How do we get into this deep relationship? I think that just about everybody in here would agree that prayer is important to the Christian life. However, if I were a betting man, I would put my money on it that most of us do not pray. And I think if I were to ask why we don't pray, I would be uh, met with two typical responses. One would be, well, I'm just so busy. I don't have enough time to pray. And I think that the second one, if people were honest with me, I think I would get, I just don't know how. I don't know how to pray. Uh, on the first count, I don't know, or I don't have enough time. Uh, I would just simply say, there's always time for that which you love. That which you really love, that which you really desire to do, you make time for. When I was trying to trick Chelsea into marrying me, and yes, I said trick for a reason there, I had lots of time for her, all the time, right? I would get off of work, and it would be late, and I would be like, hey, do you want to come over? Do you want to go to the Waffle House, to the IHOP? We'll have some pancakes. I'll woo you, charm you. I was trying to get her to, to be my wife, right? I, I made time for her. You make time for your friends. You know, if something goes wrong in your day, you make time to pick up the phone and, and call your buddy across state lines and say, man, I've had the worst day. You make time for that which you care about. And so to, uh, to I don't have enough time, I'm just too busy, I, I say, bull, you just don't love God enough. You just don't want to pray enough. Make time for the things that we love. On the second count, uh, I don't know how to pray. Uh, I think I was reminded of, uh, if y'all seen this movie Gravity advertised, right? It's the one where they're in space. It's got Sandra Bullock. Most of the women in here love Sandra Bullock. She's like queen of all chick flicks. Uh, but there's a, there, there's a pretty troubling scene in Gravity. And this is what, this is what Sandra Bullock's character says. Uh, everything's kind of going haywire. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Everything's kind of going haywire, and uh, she is about to die. At least she thinks she is, so we're not spoiling it for anybody. She says this, No one will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you pray for me? I'd pray for myself, but I've never prayed. Nobody ever taught me how. What a heartbreaking quote. This woman on the edge of her life, on the edge of the universe, looking out into complete darkness, has no hope. She's hopeless to the point where she can't even pray for herself. And so she asks others to pray for her. 
Friends, don't wait till you're at the end of your life to learn how to pray. Don't wait to the end of your life to seek out God, to seek out question, to seek out answers to the big questions in life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Why does it matter? The answer is you're here to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's your end. That's your purpose is to be in relationship with God. Part of that relationship, an integral part of that relationship is communicating with him. That's why I would exhort you, and I think it's the first blank this morning, to learn to pray. To learn to pray. I mean, it's really, really easy. You can do it silently. You can do it in a crowded room. You can do it early in the morning when you're by yourself. All you do is simply aim your thoughts and your affections and all of your faculties towards God. You set your heart on God and you speak and you listen. If you're like me, sometimes you might struggle with what exactly to pray. Uh, And I've found a practice that's effective for me is I'll open my Bible and I'll turn in there and I'll just read. Uh, Maybe you don't read in Judges as often when you're trying to pray, but you can pray through Judges if you want. I like to go to the Psalms or maybe one of the Pauline epistles where he's kind of giving like fruit of the Spirit's one. Uh, You know, he says the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We did that way back when. And I'll pray, Lord, give me love. Give me kindness. Let me know what true joy is. I know that true joy is knowing you and having you as my treasure. Will you make yourself my treasure? So pray through scripture. It's, it's very, very helpful. Um, if you're more like me, uh, you, you might be easily distracted as well, right? Uh, just the smallest thing can, can set you off. Uh, what I found effective for me too is just simply taking a journal. I got a new one this week and writing down some of my prayers or portions of my prayers or people's names, who I'm praying for. And just having the pen in my hand and looking down at the paper keeps me focused on what I'm doing as I go before the throne of God. So those things can, can help you uh, learn to pray a little bit. Um, if you're not praying, I think a very practical way to get started, uh, my pastor at my previous church showed me this, is just uh, after church today, when you get home, take a piece of paper. It doesn't have to be a bulletin. This is just what I had handy. And, uh, and just fold it over. I believe they call this hamburger style in the academy. I'm not sure. Go hamburger style once, and then you can go hot dog style, I think is the word for it, the other way. And then uh, when you unfold the paper, like so, you have little slots um, this didn't come out quite how I wanted, but you have little four little categories. You, you know, you can get your origami on and get as many ca- little slots as you want, natural sections. And in each section, uh, you write a day of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you, you know the days. And then under each day of the week, you just write somebody's name that you're praying for. If you're like me and you ended up with one extra slot, you can put like a bonus day in there. You pray for two people or you pray for the same person every day of the week. So it's just really a practical way. Just go home when you do it today, fold up a piece of paper, Write, write Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and write somebody's name in there. And then pray for them throughout the week. Just say, all right, five minutes when I wake up in the morning, I'm praying for this person. And give that time to the Lord. It, it, it'll help your prayer life. It, it was helpful to me. It's still helpful to me. I think that it's extremely comforting to know that as followers of Jesus, that we're not ever without hope. We don't ever have to look into the dark places in our lives and think, I can't even pray for myself. Because we have a Savior. Because we know the God who speaks. And thankfully, he's also the God who listens to his people. Learn to pray. Men was prayed, and uh, the angel of the Lord has returned. 
And now the conversation ensues and we're going to see his first misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of God's message. And he's eventually going to ask, well, what are the rules here? In verse 11, And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's rule of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah misunderstands God's message, and so first he seeks to authenticate it. He's like, are you the same guy that I was talking to? He's making sure the messenger is trustworthy. And then he asks, and I'm just simply, I think, summarizing his question, what are the rules for raising this child? And the angel of the Lord gives him no new information. If you'll notice, he repeats back almost verbatim the exact words that he said to the woman the first time. Doesn't give him anything new. He had prayed that this guy, that the angel of the Lord would return so that he could learn how to raise his child. But instead of getting a playbook for how to raise his kid, instead of having the rules outlined for him, he's giving some, given something much, much better, something he didn't ask for, a revelation from God. He's given God himself. Keller writes of this, God's message to Manoa is a message to all of us. We think we need rules, but really we need to know God. The rules simply reflect God's character, and when we love God for who he is, his character will naturally be reflected in our own lives. For instance, right now, uh, my son is at a fun stage where he's just learned to start crawling around and getting into things. And uh, uh, even early on, Chelsea and I have found ourselves going, don't touch that, don't put that in your mouth, don't go there. That's not for babies. You know, the other day we had him outside, he was trying to put dirt in his mouth, like he just doesn't know any better. Right? He needs explicit instruction, like don't put your finger in the light socket so that he can live life well and be safe and be healthy. But the older he gets, the less instruction he's going to need. So the older a child gets, the more and more you expect them to incorporate the wisdom and the values and the thinking that they've learned into their own heart so that they don't need detailed instruction all the time. In order to guide our children and to guide ourselves into maturity, we must increasingly move from lots of external rules, lots of do's and don'ts, and move into internal motives and wisdom principles. God has told Manoah and his wife that all they need to know how to raise their child, right? He tells them that they need to to consecrate this child to to the Lord, that he's going to keep the Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow, it includes all the things he said. He abstained from wine or intoxicating drinks. He doesn't get his hair cut. And then he's not allowed to touch anything that's dead. Uh, A person during this time that would take this vow, is they're just simply uh, dedicating their life to the Lord in a special way. So the answer to his question, what are the rules? God basically says, you already have all you need to know. Consecrate this child to the Lord. Give him to a life dedicated to God. See, the life of faith trusts the promise and plan of God, not rule-keeping. The life that pleases God is not built on behavior modification, but on heart transformation. 
The boy will not live out God's plan because of his own uh, desire to do right things. But because God is a God who keeps his promises. Thank goodness that he does. He does what he's going to do based not on my performance, not on your performance, but on his great promise. Likewise, we all want to live out God's plan in our lives. And we'll be able to do so, not because of our own do-goodedness, but because of who God is and who he has made us in Christ. Because he's empowered us with his Holy Spirit. I think we're all tempted to sometimes uh, look to God and actually ask that question. Hey, can I have the answer to this specific situation? What should I do? You know, should I drink Coke or Pepsi today? Lord, I need to know. The answer is Coke usually. But, but you, we want those definitive, head-on answers so we don't have to really think about what we should do. I think, are there, are there areas of your life that deep down, if you're honest, probably a little bit more serious than your soda selection, that you would like God to give you answers rather than himself? Are there areas of your life that you would like God to just explicitly give you answers rather than himself? Ultimately, we just need God himself. Because when Jesus becomes our treasure, we end up living out God's plan for our lives. Because when he is at center and everything is devoted to him, we don't have to worry about keeping the rules. We can just love Jesus. We don't have to worry about keeping the rules. We can just love Jesus. God's message is not about rule keeping. It's not about performance but it's about his promise. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. It's a great pickup line if you're looking to take a young lady to dinner. Uh, Let me detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Uh, Try it out if you're single. Uh, Saying, hey, stay and eat with me. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So here we see Manoah not only misunderstands God's message, but now he misunderstands his relationship with God. He thinks that he is in fellowship, that he is at peace with God. He is not. Rewind quickly and look at verse 1 again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. See, Manoah and Israel, likewise, think that everything is cool. They think it's all good. But if you read further in Judges, you'll see uh, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And there was no king in Israel was the refrain. Because what they think is right in their own eyes is not right in the Lord's eyes. It's actually evil. Even though Israel doesn't consider their actions sinful, they are. Which helps us to see two truths about sin. And I think uh, Tim Keller uh, is helpful here. So first, the definition of sin, this phrase, the eyes of the Lord, contrasts with our own eyes, teaches us that sin does not ultimately consist of violating our own conscience or violating our own personal standards or violating community standards, but rather it consists of violating God's will. This flies in the face of modern thinking. It is continually asserted in innumerable forums and venues that only you can define what's right or wrong for you. In other words, my own eyes. My heart's feelings, my mind's perceptions are the only way to determine right and wrong. 
Common sense, even if we don't have a Bible, contradicts this. If evil is only determined by our own eyes, how then could we tell the Nazis that it was wrong to exterminate Jews? They thought they were doing the human race a favor. Or even providing a justice for imagined wrongs. See, once we admit that our own eyes is not a sufficient way for defining sin, then whose eyes are? Is evil defined by what the experts say evil is? Or maybe what the majority says evil is? None of these views will avoid holocausts either. You see, the Bible's answer is the right one. Sin is defined as violating our relationship with God, as violating the will of God for us. What God sees as sin is sin, regardless of what we feel or the experts say or the culture agrees on. Secondly, I think this shows us how sneaky and deceptive sin really is. Everyone always has a rationalization when they do wrong. I did it because the devil made me do it. I did it because, you know, she was doing it. Whatever, there's always an excuse. And I'm sure that uh, Israel had cultural and psychological excuses for why they were doing what they were doing. Perhaps they argued, hey, we were just born this way, sinful, and so it must be okay for us to continue on sinning. We're no different. We are susceptible to making excuses for our idols and for those things that we worship rather than God. Make an idol of someone or something and devote ourselves to it completely. We find a way to call it something other than sin. As we have said, uh, idols are almost always good things. Perverted and turned into ultimate hopes and ultimate goals. So that the line between hard work and, and making an idol of work loving your family and making an idol of family is a very, very thin line. It's easy to slip into the sin of idolatry. Sin is deceitful. Couple that with the deceitfulness of our own hearts. It's really hard to figure out what sin is sometimes. Unless we are regularly and continually evaluating ourselves and our actions, our own hearts, through the reflection, through biblical reflection and through personal accountability to others. So we need to be aware of our spiritual condition. Manoah is unaware of his spiritual condition, and he's unaware of who the angel of the Lord is. And so he asks him to stay and eat, because he doesn't understand that his relationship with God is broken. We don't eat with people we don't like. We don't eat with people that we're not at peace with, not usually. No, eating at a table especially in this culture, is a sign of friendship. It's a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of peace. I mean, think about it. You don't see Batman sitting down to dinner with the Joker. You don't see Superman sitting down with Lex Luthor for a meal. They're not friends. They're enemies. See, Manoah is blind to his spiritual condition. He does not recognize that he is at war with God. He's not at peace with him. I think this is the same condition of many. People, everybody, everybody always thinks that God is okay with me. He's all right with my behavior. He's at peace with everybody. This is a terrible, terrible lie. God is only at peace with those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who is not following Jesus, everyone who does not have Jesus at the center of their lives, is an enemy of God. 
They are in open rebellion against the God of the universe. That's what sin makes us, God's enemies. It makes us suppress the truth and follow that which is false, follow that which is evil. Romans tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Apart from Christ, we have no place at the table of God. No, apart from Christ, our only place is under God's righteous wrath. And it's only through Jesus that we can find ourselves right with God and able to come to his table, able to share a meal. Remember, we're made right with God, not by moralism or rule-keeping. That was the message to Manoah, but by trusting in his promise. But I feel that many of us, like Manoah, don't even know our spiritual condition, don't even know the status of our relationship with God. In fact, Manoah is so blind to his own condition, he doesn't even see who this angel of the Lord is. He doesn't even know who he's asking to dinner. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? He asked for his name and and the angel responds, literally, it's beyond your understanding. It's extraordinary. It's wonderful. The word used here is actually kind of intentional on the angel of the Lord's part. Points us back to the exodus. It's used over and over again of all the wonderful deliverances that God brings to his people. The angel of the Lord is pointing into the fact that he is God. We've discussed the identity of the angel of the Lord uh, in past weeks, uh, and so we're not going to devote our full attention to it here, uh, to all the arguments. But uh, suffice it to say that the angel of the Lord is again and again uh, reckoned to being God himself. And I think here we can rightfully see him as God the Son. Uh, which reveals to us uh, not only uh, God's multipersonal nature, but also uh, the nature of the Trinity. And so the angel is God the Son, and uh, he's meeting with Manoah. Manoah doesn't recognize this. He doesn't recognize who this man is. And he insists on inviting him to dinner, doing something for him. And the angel says, well, I'm not going to eat with you. We're not at peace. So go ahead and prepare a burnt offering and offer it to the Lord. So we see in verse 19, Manoah took a young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. I love the wordplay here. Manoah makes an offering to the one who works wonders in the presence of the one whose name is Wonderful. And the one whose name is wonderful, too wonderful, goes up in the flame to heaven as the offering is consumed. And Manoah and his wife find themselves on their faces. Which leads Manoah to the realization of in whose presence he was. He asks this third question, why aren't we dead? Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. And Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. You see that? We've seen the angel of the Lord. We have seen God. We should be dead. That's what happens in the Bible when people come face to face with the holy God is they die. 
But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted our offering or shown us these things or now announced to us such things as these. Mano's theology is actually right here. They should be dead. But his wife points out, using logic alongside with her faith, that, hey, if the Lord had wanted us dead, we would be dead. If he wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have told us of this special child that is to come and to deliver us from the Philistines, begin to deliver us from the Philistines. I think the second reason that he expects to be dead is that seeing God makes him see himself as he truly is. He sees God as truly righteous and then he sees himself as a sinner who has earned death and judgment. Yet he doesn't die. He doesn't die because of God's promise that would one day be fulfilled. Even now, in Manoah's time, before it happened in space and time, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ provides mercy to Manoah so that God doesn't kill him because he's going to pour out the wrath that Manoah deserves on Christ at the cross. Just like he pours out the wrath that you and I deserve on Christ at the cross. It is mercy that comes through the judgment of the true promised one who died as our substitute on the cross. It's only through the lens of the cross that we're able to see clearly how God's righteousness and how his mercy coalesce. It's only at the cross that we can make sense of the conditionality of his promises, those who express faith in him, and the unconditionality that he loves us, how those things work together. The cross shows us that our failures have been dealt with, And that by faith in Jesus, we can be made right with God because he has taken our place. He has taken our punishment and given us his righteousness. He has lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. All this brings us to verse 24 and 25 in the end of chapter 13. It says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. See, God's promise of this miraculous birth, promise of Samson to his parents, changed their lives forever. He invaded their world, changed everything for him. This miraculous birth also points us forward to the most miraculous birth, when our Savior would be born not from a barren woman, but from a virgin. It also points us forward to a miraculous deliverance that was bought for us on the cross points us forward to the true deliverer who saves completely to the true fulfillment of the ultimate promise points us forward to Jesus who brings us peace with God. Now this promise to Menoah and his wife changed their lives forever. Will the great promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ change you? That's the question you have to ask yourself this morning. Judges is indeed a very dark time, but it points us forward to the coming of the one who wraps himself in light as a garment, who calls us to repent of our sin and to trust in him as our substitution. The one who allows us to enter into peace with God, to enter into his rest. So I ask you this morning, uh, if you know Jesus, to preach the gospel to yourself.
and to treasure him. This morning, if you don't know him, I challenge you. Treasure him. Come to him.